welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. And I'm Chad. And this week, we have some business to take care of before we get started. We happen to have a new Patreon. Yeah! And that Patreon has earned herself a shout out. So thank you, Britt. For adding to our Patreon. Thank you. And now I think it's time for us to actually start putting more stuff on our Patreon. So we're going to have to come up with some great stuff for you guys. If you guys have anything you want us to put on the Patreon, um, let us know if you want like pregame chatter or I don't know, whatever. Sexy selfies of other people, not us. Foot pics, whatever (laughs) it is. (laughs) Foot picks, though, that's a that $20. Requ- yeah, that's yeah. a little bit higher, yeah. Patreon. <laughs> if you want Chad's manicured feet picks, it's going to be a lot more than yeah. $20 a month. I'm just saying. <laughs> you got to pay for them. <laughs> yeah, it's going to take me take some work to get those ready. <laughs> but well, thank you, Britt. We appreciate it. Thank you very it. much. We love thank you. you. Thank you so much. And you're going to be getting something in the mail soon. And we love all our Patreons. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, Chase posted a picture of him and all his Patreon yeah. swag. In, in, in the field in the with field. the rest of the cows. <laughs> with the rest of our herd. <laughs> now, this episode is going to be a booyah! Some, some of our listeners say that these are their favorite episodes. So, we've got something a little special for you this time. Ooh. This is number six or seven? This is number seven. Never s- n- number seven. Seven number. Seven. Lucky number seven. So, Dave, you're going to start us out. So, tell us what our treat is. Who remembers Mad Libs? Me. Mad Libs. I used to fill those books out all oh, the time. So, I brought along a few for us to do that have a horror theme. Ooh. Yay. I love horror theme. Horror theme. Oh, horror theme. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We can make it horror theme if you want to. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this is going to be dark night. I need an adjective. Big. I need a plural family member. Uncles. Like uncles, brothers, or sisters, nephews. Uncles, sisters. That'd be an ad. (laughs) (laughs) And another one. Stepdads. Cousin. What are you doing, stepdads? <laughs> now I need just a regular family member, like... Son. Son. Now an animal. A walrus. An earthly substance. Coal. A time of day. Night. Uh, Like a time, like 2 o'clock, oh. 3 oh. o'clock. Uh, 12.45 p.m. So specific. <laughs> a color. Black. A number. 13. A noise. <laughs> I don't know how to spell that, by the way. <laughs> a direction. North. An adjective. Fast. A plural transportation. I.e. Like cars. Trains, cars, okay. bikes. What was it? Cars. 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 An animal. Beluga. A verb ending in ing. Running. A body part. Penis. A color. Blue. A clothing item. 
Underwear. An adjective? Tiny. A verb that ends in ed. Jumped. A plural occupation. Podcasters. An outside object. Tree. A food. Fajitas. A family member. Daughter. An adjective. Red. A plural noun. Fleshlights. A verb that ends in ed. Masturbated. (laughs) A verb. Caught. Or catch. Another verb. Tugged. An emotion. Jubilation. A noun. House. A noun. Ceiling fan. A body part. Ass. A verb ending in ing. Flying. An animal. Donkey. A donkey. (laughs) A body part. Ears. An adjective. Gargantuan. All right. Now, let's see what story we created. All right. This is Dark Night. It was a cold, big night when I just had a fight with my uncle's sister's friend's stepdad's cousin's second son. I decided to walk my walrus for a long walk outside and get some fresh coal. It was exactly 12.45 a.m., and it was already pitch black out. But I was so puzzled about the fight, I could care less. Thirteen minutes away from my house, I heard a loud from a distance. I looked back and nothing but trees blowing north and gates slamming from the fast wind. I just went along and walked my walrus. Coming to a corner, these two cars were speeding just ahead of me. One turned and made a beluga-like sound, and the other just kept running, coming towards me. As it passed by, I looked at who was driving, and it looked like someone without a penis and blue underwear. They stared at me as I walked. I felt a little timid, so I turned the first corner and went back home. As we jumped, a group of podcasters showed up from around the tree. It scared the living fajitas out of me. One asked me if I was a daughter. I just kept walking as if I didn't hear them. One laughed and one told me I was looking red tonight and pulled out a large bag of flashlights in front of me. I asked them what they wanted, and they practically masturbated at me. My walrus got off the leash, and I told him to run home. Run home! I felt someone catch me from behind and told me I was going to get tugged tonight. I was so jubilated that I dropped my house. I then opened my purse and pulled out a ceiling fan. I charged at them with me and ran as fast as my ass could take me. Running and flying, I came across a wild donkey on my next-door neighbor's lawn. It stared at me and started hissing at me and showed its ears. This was a gargantuan, endless night. But I managed to get home safely and give my walrus a hot bubble bath. <laughs> I love when they work out so perfectly. <laughs> like the group of podcasters masturbating with a bag of flashlights. Tell me I'm going to get tugged tonight. <laughs> he was jubilated. <laughs> Dropped his house. <laughs> out of his purse, though. Yeah. I'm pulled the ceiling fan out <laughs> yes, of his purse. That's right. I love those. those are so- <laughs> now we're going to get on to a scary story. Now, my stories are all coming from Roald Dahl's book of ghost stories. And what is awesome about this book is this book is actually written by Roald Dahl, but these are stories 
These are scary stories that he discovered while researching for a TV show back in the 50s that was nothing but ghost stories. So in his research, he read around 500 book, or 500 short scary stories, and he came out with 25 good ones. And these are the 14 best that are in this book. Oh, wow. The show never happened because the, the uh, pilot they sent to America was about a Catholic priest, and they would not film it or not release it. Interesting. But this book is really good. This book is by Rosemary Timperley, and the name of the story is Harry. Such ordinary things make me afraid. Sunshine, sharp shadows in the grass, white roses, children with red hair, and the name Harry. Such an ordinary name. Yet the first time Christine mentioned the name, I felt a premonition of fear. She was five years old, due to start school in three months' time. It was, hot, it was a hot, beautiful day, and she was playing alone in the garden, as she often did. I saw her lying on her stomach in the grass, picking daisies and making daisy chains with laborious pleasure. The sun burned on her pale red hair, and her skin looked very white. Her big blue eyes were wide with concentration. Suddenly, she looked towards the bush of white roses, which cast its shadow over the grass, and smiled. Yes, I'm Christine, she said. She rose and walked slowly towards the bush. Her little plump legs, defenseless and endearing beneath the too short cotton skirt. She was growing fast. With my mummy and daddy, she said clearly. Then after a pause, oh, but they are my mummy and daddy. She was in the shadow of the bush now. It was as if she'd walked out of the world of light and into darkness. Uneasy. Without quite knowing why, I called her. Chris, what are you doing? Nothing. The voice sounded too far away. Come in now. It's too hot for you out there. Not too hot. Come indoors, Chris. She said, I must go now. Goodbye. Then walked slowly towards the house. Chris, who are you talking to? Harry, she said. Who's Harry? Harry. I couldn't get anything else out of her, so I just gave her some cake and milk and read, her, read to her until bedtime. As she listened, she stared out into the garden. Once she smiled and waved, it was relief to finally tuck her up in bed and feel, her, or feel she was safe. When Jim, my husband, came home, I told him about the mysterious, mysterious Harry. He laughed. Oh, she's started that lark, has she? What do you mean, Jim? It's not so very rare for only children to have imaginary companions. Some kids talk to their dolls. Chris has never been keen on her dolls. She hasn't any brothers or sisters. She hasn't any friends her own age. So she imagines someone. But why has she picked that particular name? He shrugged. You know how kids pick up things. I don't know what, what you're worried about. Honestly, I don't. Nor do I, really. It's just that I feel extra responsible for her. More, more so than if I were her real mother. I know, but she's all right. Chris, Chris is fine. She's a pretty healthy, intelligent little girl. A credit to you. And to you. In fact, we're thoroughly nice parents. And so modest. We laughed together and he kissed me. I felt consoled until the next morning. 
Again, the sun shone brightly in the, on the small, bright lawn of white roses. Christine was sitting in the grass, legs crossed, staring towards the rose bush, smiling. Hello, she said. I hoped you'd come because I like you. How old are you? I'm only five and a piece. I'm not a baby. I'm going to school soon and I shall have new, a new dress, a green one. Do you go to school? What do you do then? She was silent for a while, nodding and listening, absorbed. I felt myself going cold as I stood there in the kitchen. Don't be silly. Lots of children have imaginary companions, I told myself desperately. Just carry on as if nothing was happening. Don't listen. Don't be a fool. But I called Chris in early for her usual mid-morning milk. Your milk's ready, Chris. Come along. In a minute. This is a really strange reply. Usually she rushed in eagerly for her milk and with a special sandwich cream biscuits over which she was our little was a little gourmet. Come now, darling, I said. Can Harry come too? No. The cry burst from me harshly, surprising me. Goodbye, Harry. I'm sorry you can't come in, but I've got to have my milk, Chris said, and then ran towards the house. Why can't Harry have some milk too? She challenged me. Who is Harry, darling? Harry is my brother. But Chris, you don't have a brother. Daddy and Mummy have only one child, a little girl. That's you. Harry can't be your brother. Harry's my brother. He said so. She bent over the glass of milk and emerged with a smeary top lip. Then she grippled at the biscuits. At least, at least Harry hadn't spoilt her appetite. After she had her milk, I said, we're going shopping now, Chris. Would you like to come to the shops with me? Wouldn't you? I want to stay with Harry. Well, you can't. You're coming with me. Can Harry come too? No. My hands were trembling as I put my hat on put on my hat and gloves. It was chilly in the house nowadays, as if there were a cold shadow over it in spite of the sun outside. Chris came with me meekly, meekly enough, but as we walked down the street, she turned and waved. I didn't mention any of this to Jim that night. I knew he'd only scoff as he had done before. But when Chris, Christine's hairy fantasies went on day after day, it got more and more on my nerves. I came to hate and dread those long summer days. I longed for gray skies and rain. I longed for ripe roses to wither and die. I trembled when I heard Christine's voice prattling away in the garden. She kept talking, or she talked quiet unrestrained to Harry now one summer when Jim heard it heard her at it he said I'll say one thing for an imaginary companion they help a child when on her talking Chris is talking much more freely than she used to with an accent an accent a slight cockney accent my dearest every London child child gets a slight cockney accent it'll be much worse when she goes to school and meets lots of other kids we don't talk Cockney. Where does she get it from? Who can she be getting it from except, heh, I couldn't say the name. The baker, the milkman, the dustman, the coal man, the window cleaner, one anymore? I suppose not, I laughed ruefully. Jim made me feel foolish. Anyway, said Jim, I haven't noticed any Cockney in her voice. There isn't any when she talks to us. It's only when she talks to him. To Harry, you know, 
I'm getting quite attached to the young Harry. Wouldn't it be fun if one day we looked out and saw him? Don't, I cried. Don't say that. It's my nightmare. My what? My waking nightmare. Oh, Jim, I can't bear it any longer. He looked astonished. This Harry business is really getting you down, isn't it? Of course it is. Day in, day out. I hear nothing but Harry this and Harry that. Harry says, Harry thinks. Can Harry have some? Can Harry have come too? It's all right for you out in the office all day, but I have to live with it. I'm, I'm afraid of it, Jim. It's so queer. Do you know what I think you should do to put your mind at rest? What? Take Chris along to see old Dr. Webster tomorrow. Let him have a little talk with her. Do you think she's ill in her mind? Good heavens, no. But when we come across something that's a bit beyond us, it's well to take professional advice. The next day, I took Chris, see, I took Chris to see Dr. Webster. I left her in the waiting room while I told him briefly about Harry. He nodded sympathetically and then said, It's a fairly unusual case, Mrs. James, but by no means unique. I've had several cases with children of children's imaginary companions becoming so real to them that their parents got the jitters. I expect her a rather lonely little girl, isn't she? She doesn't know any other children. We're new to the neighborhood, you see, but that'll be put right when she starts school. And I think you'll find out that when she goes to school and meets other children, these fantasies will disappear. You see, every child needs a company of her own, needs company of her own age. And she doesn't get it. She invents it. Older people who are lonely talk to themselves. That doesn't mean that they're crazy. That just means that they need to talk to someone. A child is more practical. Seems silly to talk to oneself, she thinks. So she invents someone to talk to. I honestly don't think you have anything to worry about. That's what my husband says. I'm sure he does. Still, I'll have, to ch I'll have a chat with Christine, as you've brought her. Leave us alone together. I went to the waiting room to fetch Christine. She was at the window. She said, Harry's waiting. Where, Chris? I said quietly, wanting suddenly to see, see with her eyes. There, by the rose bush. The doctor had a bush of white roses in his garden. There's no one there, I said. Chris gave me a glance of childlike scorn. Dr. Weber wants to see you now, darling, I said shakily. You remember him, don't you? He gave you sweets when you were getting better from chicken pox. Yes, she said, and went willingly enough into the doctor's surgery. I waited restlessly. Faintly, I heard their voices through the wall. Heard the doctor chuckle. Christine's high pearl of laughter. She was talking away to the doctor in the way she didn't talk to me. When they came out, he said, Nothing's wrong with her, whatever. She's just an imaginative little monkey. A word of advice, Mrs. James? Let her talk about Harry. Let her become accustomed to confiding in you. I gather you've shown, shown some disapproval of this, of this brother of hers, so she doesn't talk much to you about him. He makes wooden toys, doesn't he, Chris? Yes, Harry makes wooden toys. And he can read and write, can he? And swim and climb trees and paint pictures. Harry can do everything. He's a wonderful brother. Her little face flushed with adoration. The doctor patted me on the shoulder and said, Harry sounds like a very nice brother for her. He's even got red hair like you, Krista, hasn't he? Harry's got red hair, said Chris proudly. Redder than my hair. And he's nearly as tall as daddy, only thinner. He's as tall as you, mummy. He's 14. 
He says he's tall for his age. What is tall for his age? Mummy will tell you about that as you walk home, said Dr. Webster. Now, goodbye, Mrs. James. Don't worry. Just let her prattle. Goodbye, Chris. Give my love to Harry. He's here, said Chris, and pointed to the doctor's garden. He's been waiting for me. Dr. Webster laughed. They're incorrigible, aren't they? He said. I knew one poor mother whose children invented a whole tribe of imaginary natives whose rituals and taboos ruled the household. Perhaps you're lucky, Mrs. James. I tried to feel comforted by all of this, but I wasn't. I hoped sincerely that Chris would start that when Chris started school, this wretched hairy business would finish. Chris ran ahead of me. She looked up as if someone was beside her. For a brief, dreadful second, I saw a shadow on the pavement alongside her own. A long, thin shadow, like a boy's shadow. And then it was gone. I ran to catch up with her, held her hand tightly, all the way home. Even in the comparative security of the house, the house was so strangely cold in this hot weather. I never let her out of my sight. On the face of it, she behaved no differently towards me, but in reality, she was drifting away. The child in my house was becoming a stranger. For the first time since Jim and I had adopted Chris, I wondered seriously, who is she? Where does she come from? Who were her real parents? Who is this little loved stranger I've taken as a daughter. Who is Christine? Another week passed. It was Harry, Harry all the time. The day before she started school, Chris said, not going to school. You're going to school tomorrow, Chris. You've been looking forward to it. You know you are. There'll be lots of other little girls and boys. Harry said he can't come too. You won't want Harry at school. He's, er, he'll. I tried hard to follow the doctor's advice and appear to believe in Harry. He'll be too old. He'll feel silly among the little boys and girls. A great lad of 14. I won't go to school without Harry. I want to be with Harry. She began to weep loudly and painfully. Chris, stop this nonsense. Stop it. I struck her sharply on the arm. Her crying ceased immediately. She stared at me, her blue eyes wide open and frighteningly cold. She gave me the adult stare that made me tremble. Then she said, You don't love me. Harry loves me. Harry wants me. He says I can go with him. I will not hear any more of this, I shouted, hating the anger in my voice, hating myself for being angry at all. A little girl, my little girl, mine. I went down on one knee and held out my arms. Chris, darling, come here. She came slowly. I love you, I said. I love you, Chris. I am real. School is real. Go to school to please me. Harry will go, go away if I do. You'll have other friends. I want Harry. Again, tears wet against my shoulder now. I held her closely. You're tired, baby. Come to bed. She slept with a tear stain still on her face. It was still daylight, and I went to the window to draw the curtains. Golden shadows and long strips of sunlight in the garden. Then again, like a dream, a long, thin, clear shadow of a boy appeared near the white roses. 
Like a mad woman, I opened the window and shouted, Harry! Harry! I thought I saw a glimmer of red amongst the roses, like close red, like close red curls on a boy's head. Then there was nothing. When I told Jim about Christine's emotional outburst, he said, Poor little kid. It's always nervy business starting school. She'll be all right once she gets there. You'll be hearing less about Harry, too, as time goes on. Terry doesn't want her to go to school. Hey, you sound as if you believe Harry in Harry yourself. Sometimes I do. Believing in evil spirits at your old age, he teased me. But his eyes were concerned. He thought I was going round the bend. And a small blame to him. I don't think Harry's evil, I said. He's just a boy, a boy who doesn't exist except for Christine. And who is Christine? None of that, Jim said sharply. When we adopted Chris, we decided that she was our own child. No probing into the past, no wondering no, and worrying, no mysteries. Chris is as much ours as she'd been born of our own flesh. Who is Christine indeed? She is our daughter, and you just remember that. Yes, Jim, you're right. Of course you're right. He'd been so fierce about it, and I didn't tell him what I had planned to do the next day while Chris was at school. The next morning, Chris was silent and sulky. Jim joked with her and tried to cheer her up, but all she would do was look out the window and say, Harry's gone. You won't need Harry now. You're going to school, he said. Chris gave him a look of grown-up contempt as she gave, as she's given me sometimes. She and I didn't speak as I took her to school. I was almost in tears. Although I was glad for her to start school, I felt a sense of loss in parting with her. I suppose every mother feels that when she takes her ewe lamb to school for the first day. It's the end of babyhood for a child. It's the beginning of life and reality, life and its cruelty, its strangeness, its barbarity. I kissed her goodbye at the gate and said, You'll be having dinner at school with the other children, Chris, and I'll call for you when school is over at three o'clock. Yes, Mummy. She held my hand tightly. Other nervous little children were arriving with equally nervous parents. A pleasant young teacher with, a f with fair hair and white linen dress appeared at the gate. She gathered the new children towards her and led them away. She gave me a sympathetic smile as she passed and said, We'll take good care of her. I felt quite lighthearted as I walked away, knowing that Chris was, was safe and I didn't have to worry. Now I started my own secret mission. I took the bus to town and went to the big gaunt building that I hadn't visited in over five years. Then Jim and I had gone together, and the top floor of the building belonged to the Greythorn Adoption Society. I climbed the four flights of stairs and knocked on the familiar door with scratched paint. A secretary whose face I didn't know let me in. May I see Miss Cleaver? My name is Mrs. James. Do you have an appointment? No, but it's very important. I'll see. The girl went out and returned a second later. Miss Cleaver will see you, Mrs. James. Mrs. Cleaver, a small, thin, gray-haired woman with a charming smile, a plain, kindly face, and a very wrinkled brow, rose to meet me. Mrs. James, how nice to see you. How's Christine? She's very well, Miss Cleaver. I'd better get straight to the point. I know you don't normally divulge the orig origin of the child to the adopters and vice versa, but I must know who Christine is. Sorry, Miss James, she began. Our rules. 
please let me tell you the whole story. Then you'll see I'm not just suffering from a vulgar, from vulgar curiosity. I told her about Harry. When I finished, she said, it's very queer, very queer indeed. Mrs. James, I'm going to break my rule this once. I'm going to tell you in strict confidence where Christine came from. She was born in a very poor part of London. There were four in the family, a father, a mother, son, and Christine herself. A son? Yes, he was 14 when, when it happened. When what happened? Let me start at the beginning. The parents hadn't really wanted Christine. The family lived in a one room on top of an old house, which should have been condemned by the san sanitary inspector, in my opinion. It was difficult enough when there were only three of them. But with a baby as well, life became a nightmare. The mother was a neurotic creature, slatterny, unhappy, too fat. After she had the baby, she took no interest in it. The brother, however, adored the little girl from the start. He got into trouble for cutting school so he could take care of her. The father had a steady job in a warehouse. Not much money, but enough to keep them alive. Then, when he was, then he was sick for several weeks and lost his job. He was laid up in that messy room, ill, worrying, nagged by his wife, irked by the baby's crying, and his son is eternal fussing over the child. I got all of these details from neighbors after, afterwards, by the way. I was also told that he had a particularly bad time in the war and had been in a nerve hospital for several months before he was fit to come home after his demob. Suddenly, it all proved too much for him. One morning, in the small hours, a woman on the ground floor saw something fall past her window and heard a thud on the ground. She went to look. The son of the family was there on the ground, Christine in his arms. The boy's neck was broken. He was dead. Christine was blue in the face, but still breathing faintly. The woman woke up the household and sent for the police and the doctor. When they went to the top room, they had to break down the door, which was locked and sealed, insi sealed inside. An overpowering smell of gas greeted them, in spite of the open window. They found the husband and wife dead on the bed and a note from the husband saying, I can't go on. I'm going to kill them all. This is the only way. The police concluded that he'd sealed up the door and windows and turned on the gas when his family was asleep, then laying beside his wife until he drifted into unconsciousness and death. But the son must have awakened. Perhaps he struggled with the door but couldn't get it open. He'd too, been too weak to shout. All he could do was pluck away the seal from the windows, open it, and fling himself out, holding his adored little sister tightly in his arms. Why Christine herself wasn't gasped is rather mysterious. Perhaps her head was right under the bedclothes pressed against her brother's chest. They always slept together. Anyway, the child was taken to the hospital, then to the home where you and Mr. James first saw her. And lucky day it was for little Christine. So her brother saved her life and died himself, I said. Yes, he was a very brave young man. Perhaps he thought not so much of saving her as much as keeping her with him. Oh, dear, that sounds ungenerous. I didn't mean to be, Miss Cleaver. What was his name? I'll have to look that up for you. She referred to one of her many files and said, The family's name was Jones, and the 14-year-old brother's name was Harold. And did he have red hair, I murmured? That I don't know, Mrs. James. But it's Harry. The boy was Harry. 
What does that mean? I can't understand it. It's not easy, but I think perhaps a deep unconscious mind, Christine has always remembered Harry and the companion of her babyhood. We don't think of children as having much memory, but there must be images from her past tucked away somewhere in a little one's head. Christine doesn't invent this Harry. She remembers him so clearly that she almost brought him to life again. I know it sounds far-fetched, but the whole story is so odd that I can, can't think of any other explanations. May I have the address of the house where they lived? She was reluctant to give me the information, but I persuaded her and she set out the last to find number three, Can- Canver Row, where the man Jones had tried to kill himself and his whole family and almost succeeded. The house seemed deserted. It was filthy and derelict. But one thing made me stare and stare. There was a tiny garden, and it scattered the bright, uneven grass splashed with bald brown patches of earth. But the little garden had one strange glory that none of the other houses on the poor street possessed. A bush of white roses. They bloomed gloriously. Their scent was overpowering. I stood by the bush and stared up at the top window. A voice startled me. What are you doing here? It was an old woman peering from the ground floor window. I I thought the house was empty, I said. It should be. Been condemned, but they can't get me out. Nowhere else to go? Won't go. The others went quickly after it happened. No one else wants to come. They say that this place is haunted. So it is. But what's the fuss about? Life and death? They're very close. You get to know that when you're old, alive or dead, what's the difference? She looked at me with yellowish bloodshot eyes and said, I saw him fall past my window. That's where he fell, among the roses. He still comes back. I see him. He won't go away until he gets her. Who? Who are you talking about? Harry Jones. Nice boy he was. Red hair. Very thin. Too determined, though. Always got his own way. Loved Christine too much, I thought. Died amongst the roses. Used to sit down here with her for hours by the roses, then died there. Or do people die? The church ought to give us some answers, but it doesn't. Not one you can believe. Go away, will you? This place isn't for you. It's for the dead who aren't dead and the living who aren't alive. I'm alive or dead. You tell me. I don't know. The crazy eyes staring at me beneath the matted white fringed hair frightened me. Mad people are terrifying. One can pity them, but one is still afraid, I murmured. I'll go now. Goodbye. And I tried to hurry across the hot, hot, the hard, hot pavement, although my legs felt heavy and half paralyzed as, as if in a nightmare. The sun blazed down on me, and I was hardly aware of it. I lost all sense of time and place as I stumbled on. Then I heard something that chilled my blood. A clock struck three. At three o'clock, I was supposed to be at the school gates waiting for Christine. Where was I now? How near the school? What bus should I take? I made frantic inquiries to passers-by, who looked at me fearfully, as I had looked at the old woman. They must have thought I was crazy. At last, I caught the right bus. Sick with dust, petrol fumes, and fear, reached the school. I ran across the hot, empty playground to the classroom. The young teacher in in white was gathering her books together. I've come for Christine James. I'm her mother. I'm so sorry I'm late. Where is she? I gasped. Christine James? The girl frowned and then said brightly, Oh, yes, I remember the pretty little redhead girl. 
That's all right. Mrs. James, her brother, called for her. How alike they are, aren't they? And so devoted. It's rather sweet to see a boy that age so fond of his baby sister. Has your husband got red hair like the two children? What did her brother say, I asked faintly. He didn't say anything when I spoke to him. He just smiled. They'll be home now, I should think. I'd say, do you feel all right? Yes, thank you. I must go. I ran all the way home through the burning streets. Christine, Chris, where are you? Chris, Chris. Sometime, even now, I hear my own voice in the past screaming through the cold house. Christine, Chris, where are you? Answer me, Chris. Then, Harry, don't take her away. Come back, Harry. Harry. Demented, I rushed into the garden. The sun struck me like a hot blade. The roses glared whitely in the air, so still. I seemed to stand timeless, placelessness. For a moment, I seemed very near to Christine, although I couldn't see her. The roses danced before my eyes and turned red. The world turned red, blood red, wet red. I fell through redness into blackness, into nothingness, to almost death. For weeks, I was in bed with sunstroke, which turned into a brain fever. During that time, Jim and the police searched for Christine in vain. The futile searches continued for months. The papers were full of the strange disappearance of the red-haired child. The teacher described the brother who had called for her. There were newspaper stories of kidnappings, baby snatchings, and child murders. Then the sensation died down. Just another unsolved mystery in the police files. And only two people knew what happened. The old crazy lady living in the dialect house and myself. Years have passed, but I walk in fear. Such ordinary things make me afraid. Sunshine, sharp shadows in the grass, white roses children with red hair and the name harry such an ordinary name booyah noise that was noise now mine are off of reddit but i got these off of the true life experiences that'll scare you um subsection um and this one was called it wasn't a bear that made those scratches my wife steph and i have been together for two years now we met at college and hit it off right away Steph was orphaned when she was very young, so she'd been raised by her grandfather until she went off to school and met me. I didn't know much about her grandfather other than he was extremely protective of her, almost verging on paranoid. Still, he passed away before I got the chance to meet him, so I never really gave him, gave him much thought other than to comfort Steph. That was until we found out that he owned something like 900 acres of forest. Steph was his only living descendant, so she was given the deed, and a key ring pertaining to a house that she had never seen before. What a 23-year-old girl was going to do with all that, I don't know. All I know was that when she told me about her new land, I knew we had to go and check it out. As we drove up, I asked her if she'd been to this house in the forest before. She said, listen, I didn't even know this land existed. I have no idea why Gramps would keep it from me. It was pretty clear that she was still taking his death pretty hard. No wonder, really. He'd basically raised her, after all. The drive up the mountains from our college took a couple hours. The forest was thick with pine and oak trees growing close to the road. The further we got from civilization, the worse the roads got. Potholes, broken branches, 
and even grass had begun to sprout out in some places. Our plan was to stay the night at the house, but if that didn't pan out, we brought our tent as well. Our GPS had had us turn off on a gravel road. This road wound and twisted around turns and rocky outcroppings. It was pretty clear that this was leading us down into a valley. After half an hour or so on this new road, we saw the house out in front of us. The house had clearly been abandoned for decades. I had brought a camera with us, so I took a picture of it right as we stepped out of the car. Steph was clearly disappointed. Well, I guess it was too much to hope someone would have been caring for it all this time. Stretching my legs after all that time in the car was really nice. Steph walked up to the house to check it out. I warned warned her that the ground might be rotted and to be careful. I started to walk around the house and took another picture. I came back to the house and walked in the front door. The inside was a mess. All rotten wood and dirt. I was honestly surprised it was still standing at all. I stuck my head back outside and my eye caught something. There was a tree growing just to the right of the house. I saw four long, deep cut marks in it. A few months old at least. I raised my camera and took a picture. That was when I heard Steph shriek. I ran back around to the front of the house and saw her standing in front of something rotten. When I took a closer look, I saw it was a deer carcass. I told Steph Steph, that we were most definitely in bear country, then took a picture of the deer. Only thing was, it looked like the deer had been cut open by a bunch of razor blades. Bears don't normally do that. The sun soon set after that. We took our tent inside the house and found a nice flat spot to set it up. I busted out my gas grill and made us a couple of hamburgers. We were sitting in our camp chairs inside the house and feeling pretty good by the time it got completely dark. Steph was looking at me pretty amazed. I asked her why she was so surprised. It's just, I've never been camping before. It's different than I imagined. She looked down at her phone. Less cell service, at least. I decided to ask more about Steph's grandpa. Why do you think he never told you about any of this? And why didn't he ever take you camping, I asked. I don't know. We went on for a while about how cool I thought the property was, plans for the future parties with friends, bonfires, all that. Clouds had rolled in, and so all the light was just from our little lantern I had brought. Pretty soon, we headed inside our tent, zipped up the door, and we were ready for bed. Steph had already fallen asleep when it happened. All the sound from outside, all the crickets, birds, owls, all stopped. In an instant, laying in my sleeping bag inside the tent, the silence was deafening. That was when I heard it. A distinct clicking noise echoed from out from the forest. I lay in silence, trying to guess what kind of animal might have made, it, made that sound. It was so loud that Steph actually woke up next to me and asked what it was. Told her I didn't know. Then I heard the clicking noise again, extremely close. So close it seemed like it might be right next to the house. I slipped out of my sleeping bag and still inside the tent and grabbed my camera. I walked up to the tent door, zipped it down quietly as I possibly could, and then I stuck my camera into the darkness and took a picture. In the flash, I saw a hand reaching through the broken window of the house. It almost looked human, but it was deathly white. It had long claws extending from each finger. Through the window, I saw what looked like a human silhouette with two bright yellow eyes staring in towards us. 
I can't be sure, but it looked like there was blood around its mouth. I pulled the camera back and zipped up the tent door closed. Steph set up. What is it? She asked. I moved next to her and covered her mouth with my hand. My heart was racing. I felt all the hairs of my body standing up. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. Silence. For a long moment, I heard nothing. Then the clicking sounds echoed out from where I knew the front door of the house was. Steph stared at me, her eyes clearly confused and afraid. She put her hand on mine and tried to pull it away, but I shook my head and didn't take it off. Silence again. I strained to hear, but nothing. It must have been two minutes I sat with my hand on Steph's mouth. Then I heard the clicking from just a few feet outside our tent door. I have no idea how it got so close without making any sound. I froze for a moment. Then as quietly as I could, I reached into my pants laying on the ground and pulled my car key, pulled out my car keys. I hit the unlock button twice. My car's horn beeped loudly from where we had parked in front of the house. Silence again. After what seemed like an eternity, I heard the clicking from out where my car was parked in front of the house. The clicking echoed out a few more times, but each one was further and further away. After half an hour or so, the cricket started back up and the forest sounded alive again. Steph stared at me. What did you see? I told her to get dressed and to be ready to run. We got dressed in the tent and I opened the door. We ran to my, where my car was, jumped in, and sped away. I didn't stop until we reached home. The next morning I went out to my car and saw this on my hood. And it's four deep scratches. And this one actually has photos to go along with it if you look up the Reddit thread. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting. Boo, y'all. Boo, y'all. So that's supposed to be a real story. Yeah. Which adds to the cool creepiness of it. Like he's actually got picked and there's actually pictures of the house, the tree with the marks, the deer carcass, the hand reaching through the window. And yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I like it. And now it's time for another Mad Lib. Yay! This one is going to be about a scary monster. So I need a noun. Church. An emotion. Sad. An animal. Monkey. And another animal. Tiger. Now plural animal part. Tails. Tails. A number. Six. 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 A plural body part. Feet. An amount of time. Hour. A plural body part. Fingers. A food. Tacos. A verb. Eat. Something outside. River. A plural noun. Priests. Plural transportation. Trains. A single piece of clothing. Jockstrap. Plural clothing. Bras. A noun. Chair. Are you just like choosing stuff you see around the room? Possibly. I love lamp. The <laughs> fact that she's, you guys got a jock strap just laying around the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, wearing one. <laughs> <laughs> a, 
a verb. Wearing. A a verb that ends with ed. Oh. um, Weird. (laughs) Be worn. Um, Danced. Danced. An animal sound. Ribbit. (laughs) A plural animal. Frogs. Another noise. Meow. An emotion. Scared. A verb that ends in ing. Farting. A single piece of clothing. Sock. A noun. School. A verb that ends in ed. Peed. A noun. Computer. A color. Aquamarine. An adjective. Smelly. A number. Four. A color. Red. A preposition. This is like backwards, forwards, sideways. Behind. Behind. A verb that ends in ed. Bounced. Transportation. Bicycle. An emotion. Relieved. Relieved. Not leafed. <laughs> a plural noun. Dildos. An adjective. What? And another adjective. Tight. All right. This is the scary monster. It was a dark night with a full church in the sky. The news said there was a sad monster on the loose. They said to watch out for a half monkey, half tiger creature with fangs, giant tails, and 666 feet. He comes out to hunt once every hour. He feeds on human fingers and raw tacos. (laughs) (laughs) It was on a night I had to eat home from work, and the only way home was through the rivers. I couldn't get a taxi because I had no priests, and the trains weren't running that late. I had to take my chances. I threw on my jockstrap and bras... (laughs) Got out my flashlight and grabbed a chair from the nearest tree, just in case. And I danced fast, really fast. When I reached the middle of the woods, I started hearing croaking sounds. But that's common on a full moon. There are usually a lot of frogs out at night. Then I started hearing meowing noises behind me. At this point, I was too scared to cry. I started farting through the trees when my socks got caught on a school. I struggled to untangle it, but there was just no time to waste. I ripped it off and peed as fast as I could. (laughs) Then I noticed I had dropped my computer. When I looked back, I suddenly saw an aquamarine figure. It looked like a smelly, four-legged creature with glowing red eyes just staring at me. I took a deep breath and ran behind, took a corner and bounced my way to the open road. That's when a bicycle stopped and offered to take me home. (laughs) I was so relieved at that point. I got home safely and locked up all my dildos. (laughs) This was most... Uh-oh, we've broken Dave. <laughs> okay, I'm going to I'm going to read them both. I got home safely and locked away all of my dildos. This was definitely the most wet night of my tight life. <laughs> oh. Boo y'all. <laughs> I like that you got tears off the nearest tree, too. 
That's where I grab all my chairs. <laughs> oh, Mad Libs are so much fun. I mean, I also love farting through the woods. <laughs> You gotta be careful. Like sometimes you get your socks stuck on the. <laughs> and then you gotta pee as fast as you mm, can. Yeah. <laughs> but at least she threw on her bras and jock <laughs> straps. <laughs> we were protected. <laughs> All right, my next story is by Richard Middleton. It's on the Brighton Road. Slowly, the sun had climbed up the hard white downs, till it broke in the little with a little of the mysterious ritual of dawn upon the sparkling world of snow. There'd been a hard frost during the night and the birds who hopped about here and there and with scat tolerance of life left no trace of their passage on the silver pavement. In places, the shattered caverns of the hedges broke the monotony of the whiteness that had fallen over the colored earth. And overhead, the sky melted from orange to deep blue, from deep blue to blue, so pale that it suggested a thin paper, suggested a thin paper screen, rather than an illimitable space across the level fields. There came a cold, silent wind which blew fine dust of snow from the trees, but hardly stored, hardly stirred the crested hedges. Once above the skyline, the sun seemed to climb more quickly. As it rose higher and it began to give out heat, the blended with the keenness of the wind. It may have been the strange alternation of the heat and cold that disturbed the tramp in his dreams, for he struggled for a moment with the snow that had covered him, like a man who finds himself twisted uncomfortably in bedclothes, and then sat up with a startling questioning eye. Lord, I, I thought I was in bed he said to himself as he took out his vacant land as he took in the vacant landscape all this while i was out here he stretched his limbs and rose carefully to his feet shook the snow off his body as he did so the wind set him shivering and he knew that his bed had been warm come i feel pretty fit he thought i suppose i'm lucky to wake it all in this or unlucky it isn't much of a business to come back to. He looked up and saw the down shining against the blue light like the Alps on a picture postcard. That means another 40 miles or so, I suppose, he continued grimly. Lord knows what I did yesterday. Walked till I was done and now I'm about 12 miles from Brighton. Damn the snow. Damn Brighton. Damn everything. The sun crept higher and higher and he started walking patiently along the road with his back turned towards the hills. Am I glad or sorry that it was only sleep that took me? Glad or sorry, glad or sorry. His thoughts seemed to arrange themselves in a metrical accompaniment to the steady thud of his footsteps as he hardly sought an answer to his questions. It was good enough to walk to. Presently, when the three-mile stone had loitered past... He overtook a boy who was stooping to light a cigarette. He wore no overcoat and looked unspeakably frail against the snow. Are you on the road, governor? asked the boy huskily as he passed. I think I am, the tramp said. Oh, then I'll come along for a bit of the way with you if you don't walk too fast. It's a bit lonesome walking this time of day. The tramp nodded his head, and the boy started limping along by his side. I'm 18, he said casually. I bet you thought I was younger. 15, I'd have said. You'd been back to loser. 18 last August. 
I've been on the road six years. I ran away from home five times when I was little, when I was little one, and the police took me back each time. Very good to me, the police was. Now I haven't got a home to run away from. Nor have I, the tramp said calmly. Oh, I can see what you are, the boy panted. You're a gentleman come down. It's harder for you than for me. The tramp glanced at the limping, feeble figure and lessened his pace. I haven't been at it long as you have, he admitted. No, I can tell that by the way you walk. You haven't got tired yet. Perhaps you expect something at the other end? The tramp, refle- the tramp reflected for a moment. I don't know, he said bitterly. I'm always expecting things. You'll grow out of that, the boy commented. It's warmer in London, but it's harder to come by grub. There isn't much in it, really. Still, there's a chance of meeting somebody there who would understand. Country people are better, the boy interrupted. Last night, I took lease of a barn for nothing and slept, in the, slept with the cows. And in the morning, the farmer routed me out and gave me tea and toke because I was little. Of course, I scored there. But in London, soup on the embankment at night and all the rest of the time, coppers moving you on. I dropped by the roadside last night and slept where I fell. I wonder, it's a wonder I didn't die, the tramp said. The boy looked at him sharply. How do you know you didn't, he said. I don't see it, the tramp said after a pause. I'll tell you, the boy said hoarsely. People like us can't get away from this sort of thing if we want to. Always hungry and thirsty and dog tired and walking all the time. And yet if anyone offers me a nice home or work, my stomach feels sick. Do I look strong? I know I'm a little for my age, but I've been knock- knocking about like this for six years. Do you think I'm not dead? I was drowned bathing in Margate, and I was killed by a gypsy with a spike. He knocked me in my head right twice, and I froze like you last night. And a motor cut me down on this very road, and yet I'm still walking along here. Walking to London. To walk away from it again, because I can't help it dead i tell you we can't get away if we want to the boy broke off in a fit of coughing and the tramp paused while he recovered you better borrow my coat for a bit tommy he said your coffin's pretty bad you go to hell the boy said fiercely puffing his cigarette i'm all right i was telling you about the road you haven't got down down to it yet but you'll find out presently we're all dead all of us who are on it And we're all tired, yet somehow we can't leave it. There's nice smells in the summer, dust and hay and wind smack you in the face in the hot days. It's nice waking up in the wet grass on a fine morning. I don't know, I don't know. He lurched forward suddenly, and the tramp caught him with his arm. I'm sick, the boy whispered, sick. The tramp looked up and down the road, but he could see no houses or any sign of help. Yet even as he supported the boy doubtfully in the middle of the road... A motor car suddenly flashed in the middle distance and came smoothly f- through the snow. What's the trouble, said the driver, quietly as he pulled up. I'm a doctor. He looked at the boy keenly and listened to his strange breathing. Pneumonia, he commented. I'll give him a lift to the infirmary, and you too if you'd like. The tramp thought about the workhouse and shook his head. I'd rather walk, he said. The boy winked faintly as he lifted him to the car. I'll meet you beyond Rea Gate, he murmured to the tramp. You'll see, and the car vanished along the white road. All morning, the tramp 
splashed through the thawing snow. But at midday, he began. He begged for some bread at a cottage door and crept into a lonely barn to eat. It was warm in there, and after the meal, he fell asleep among the hay. It was dark when he woke, and he started trudging more once more through the slushy roads. Two miles to Reagate, he figured. A frail figure slipped out of the darkness to meet him. On the road, Governor, said a husky voice. Then I'll come along for a bit of the way if you don't walk too fast. It's a bit lonesome walking all this time. But the pneumonia, the tramp aghast. I died at Crawley this morning, said the boy. Booyah. Booyah. The quiet neighbor. Just about the first thing anyone new to the neighborhood learned was to avoid Bud Fillmore. Cantankerous, territorial, and fueled but what seemed to be a deep-seated hatred for just about everything. He was the kind of man childhood nightmares were made of. Although he had lived here, lived there for a few months longer than us, by the time my family moved in across the street from the Fillmore house, his reputation was already firmly established. When other neighbors came by with their cookies and casseroles to welcome us and saw me and my brother, just 9 and 11, they'd pull my parents aside and offer hushed warnings. Keep them away from that nasty little man across the way, Mrs. Devon said. He can't stand children. My son Bill swears Bud tried to run him down with his car, Mr. Crane said. He'll look for any excuse to yell at them. He says the most terrible things. Mrs. Paul said. My parents thanked them, but I don't think they quite believed them. My mom especially wasn't fond of gossip, and she tried to take such rumors with a grain of salt until she could make her own decision. She didn't have to wait long. My older brother Scotty and I were outside tossing a baseball back and forth one Saturday morning when Scotty tossed it too hard and too high. Sailed over my head, bounced in the street, and rolled to a stop on the very edge of Mr. Fillmore's yard. Both of us overheard our neighbor's warning and were hesitant to even look at the house, much less, much less approach it. Go get it, Liz, Scotty said, nudging my shoulder. But you threw it, I replied. So, you missed it. I couldn't reach it. My whining had no effect. He pushed me towards the road, and after checking both ways, I began to creep across the, towards the ball. I had almost reached it reached it. I had just had to take a couple more steps and it would have been within my grasp when the front door of the house flew open. What the hell are y'all doing? A stout man with thin graying hair came bursting outside and stomped across his lawn towards me. My ball, I tried to say, pointing to it. You brats throwing things in my house? Think it'd be funny to break a window? No, I I glanced over my shoulder to see Scotty half pleased to run inside and whimper. Get out of here, Mr. Fillmore, Fillmore snapped. Can I just... No. Before I could react, he scooped up the baseball, which had been barely touching his grass, and stormed back inside. The whole front of his house seemed to shake with the force he slammed his door. It was the first that would be many run-ins with, run-ins with everyone's least favorite neighbor. A parent tried to talk to him about his behavior, but he just told him to keep... Their noisy little shits off his lawn and stay away from his house if he didn't want if we didn't want trouble. Dad thought about calling the cops on him, but his mom became fond of saying there's just no law against being rude. So we were just told to be care- to try and be more careful. 
He must not have always been such a bull, Mom said over dinner about a month after we moved in. He's married, you know. Dad scoffed at the idea. <laughs> oh, yeah? How'd you know? Dolores Devon was again by for a chat, and it came up. Bud wears a ring, and she said she sees Mrs. Fillmore looking out the window from time to time, but the poor woman never comes outside. She thinks she heard Bud say it was cancer once. Poor lady, sick and married to that, Dad said. Terrible, isn't it? But it does explain a bit about him. He's just trying to keep things quiet and peaceful around his house. Yeah, sure, Scotty muttered, and Mom frowned at him. He's probably very sad and lashes out without meaning to. He's an asshole, Scotty said. Language, Dad warned. But, yeah, he is. Whatever his reasoning, we all agreed it would be best to try and avoid Bud Fillmore. Scotty and I were extra careful to keep all our toys well within the confines of our own yard when we were outside playing. I also couldn't help but keep a wary eye on the house across the street just in case he decided to be extra crazy and we had to run for it. That's when I started to notice Mrs. Fillmore. Almost every time Scotty and I were out and I happened to glance at their house, I would see a tall, slender figure outlined behind the sheer curtains in one of the upstairs windows. While I couldn't get a very good look at her, I figured it couldn't be anyone anyone but the missus. Mr. Fillmore didn't have anyone else. She never banged on the window or shouted at us like her husband. She'd just stand there watching us. I'd like to imagine that she was a nice lady, quiet neighbor who just enjoyed seeing kids that play. I remember my mom saying Mrs. Fillmore was sick, and I felt sorry that she was trapped in her house with her horrible husband. So I tried to be nice and smile and wave once, just once. Mr. Fillmore appeared at his front stoop and yelled at me for being a pest until I retreated inside. When I peeked out my living room window later, and Mrs. Fillmore wasn't in her usual spot anymore. Eventually, we got used to Mr. Fillmore glowering at us as we drove slowly past, his short temper and his loud voice. It was such a regular thing that our fear turned to caution, turned eye-rolling dismissiveness. Bud doesn't own the street. You kids go out there and be kids, and if he has a problem with it, I'll deal with him, he said, Dad said. After that, we started to be a little less careful with our things and a little more free with our laughter. We lost a few balls to the film yard, one or two frisbees. Nothing we really cared about, nothing until Scotty's remote-controlled helicopter. It had been a birthday present, and we were both eager to try it out. As soon as we finished supper, we raced out to the front lawn, where Scotty prepared his helicopter for its first flight. Under my brother's inexperience and clumsiness, clumsy guidance, the helicopter lifted slowly from the ground and staggered drunkenly through the air. In his excitement to keep it aloft, Scotty didn't realize it was heading right for Fillmore's yard until it was too late. Scotty, I tugged him on his arm and tried to turn off, turn it off course, but it only made things worse. The little helicopter took a nosedive straight into the hedges under Mr. Fillmore's bay window. Scotty frantically wiggled the controls, but the helicopter blades were, were stuck fast in the thick greenery. As if he'd been waiting for us to slip up, the front door was flung open and he practically bounced on the toy. What have I told you, he bellowed. Before we could argue, he'd already disappeared back into the house. The upstairs curtain fluttered just so when I knew Mrs. Fillmore was watching. I wanted to call up to her and ask her to get her helicopter back, but Scotty grabbed my wrist and dragged me behind him to find Mom and Dad. 
When our parents went over later, he refused to come to the door. Don't worry, kids, they assured us. Next time we see him, we'll sit down and have a real discussion about this. That wasn't enough Scotty, for Scotty, though. I followed him up to his room and sat on the end of his bed while he paced back and forth while ranting about how unfair it all was. He was fuming and furious, and all he wanted was his birthday present back now. But how, I asked. He paused, his gaze sliding to his window and the house beyond. We're gonna take it. It was a childish, simple, stupid plan, with no thought to consequences or punishment. We are gonna break into Fillmore's house and get all of our things back. Well, do we will do it when he when he goes out next. I can figure out how to open the lock. It can't be that hard. Then we just have to find our stuff. What about Mrs. Fillmore? She never leaves. You can distract her or something. I don't know. We'll figure it out. I don't know, Scotty, I said uneasily. I didn't want to disrupt a poor sick lady for a few toys. Don't worry. We'll be in and out. She'll probably won't even notice we're there. I doubted that, but I had a hard time saying no to my big brother. Scotty put his plan into action the very next afternoon. We were playing a game of a horse in the driveway when Mr. Fillmore's garage opened and his car chugged to life. He was wearing his customary scowl as he drove by. The moment he turned the corner, Scotty chucked our baseball off to the side and bolted across the street. I checked to see if Mrs. Fillmore was in her window, and when I saw no sign of her, I followed. Scotty's idea of getting the lock open turned out to be using a small rock to break the window pane on the door above the latch. It was something he'd seen in a movie or something. Immediately, I had images of flashing red and blue lights and handcuffs, and my stomach turned sharply, but my brother whispered to me, it would be fine. He can't prove it it was us. Everyone on the street hates him. He sounded so confident that all I could do was nod. Scotty reached carefully through the broken glass, carefully not to cut himself, and found the deadbolt. It clicked out of place, and he pushed the door open, letting us in to Mr. Fillmore's house. I clung to the back of Scotty's shirt while he tiptoed across the kitchen. It was spotless, obsessively so, and smelled of cleaning supplies. Every window had something tacked over it, old blankets, towels, blocking out the bright afternoon sun and casting the room into a gloomy darkness that made the room seem small and oppressive. I swallowed hard and forced myself to follow Scotty. Every room was the same. Fastidiously clean, organized, shrouded in shadows. The bay window I knew he spied on us from had a little hole cut into a heavy velveteen material, just big enough for someone to see out of. I could just picture him sitting on his plastic-covered couch watching us, waiting for us to get too close. It was enough to make me shudder. We cleared the hole downstairs pretty quick, and there was no sign of our things. Shit, Scotty hissed. He must keep it upstairs. But, Mrs. Fillmore, just stay close and stay quiet, okay? I nodded, too nervously to say anything else anyway. We'd only gotten a few steps when the floorboards on the second floor creaked. Scotty immediately pressed himself against the wall and motioned me to do the same. We listened to the soft padding of footsteps crossing from one room to another. Scotty, I whispered, grabbing at his sleeve with both hands. Let's just go. No, he went too far this time. I'm going to get my helicopter. Door hinges squeaked from somewhere upstairs and the footsteps stopped. 
Scotty pulled his arm away from me and scampered up the remaining steps. Reluctantly, I went up too. We found a guest bedroom first. It was all muted colors and magazine quality furniture, void of any warmth or personality. Like it was just set up for show, never intended for use. At least it was a bit brighter up there. The windows only had a few layers of sheer curtains over them. Enough to obscure visibility, but still let in light. The second room was obviously Mr. Fillmore's. It was the most lived-in looking room from all, from them all. And even then, it was only because there were some pictures hanging on the wall, some personal items on the nightstand. The bed was meticulously made. All the clothing, most of which was masculine, hung neatly in the closet. There wasn't even a stray hair in the brush on the vanity. I wondered how someone could live in such a cold, lifeless house. There was only one room left upstairs, the one Mrs. Fillmore must have gone into. Its door stood half open. Scotty and I traded a look. His determined, mine silently pleading with him to go. He took a step towards the door. I shook my head and grabbed out the back of his shirt again. He brushed me off and placed the flat part of his hand on the door, pushing it open slowly. Inside the room was mostly empty, except for a large vanity against one wall, a framed wedding picture on it, and I recognized Mr. Fillmore despite being younger and thinner. In front of the vanity, posed on a tall stool, was a mannequin. She was wearing what I thought of as a 50s housewife dress, white with little pink and green flowers all over it, a string of pearls, and a blonde wig carefully combed back into a bun. Her featureless face was fixed on the mirror in front of her. Scotty's brow wrinkled, showing the same confusion as I'd felt. We'd both heard Mrs. Fillmore walk into the room, but there was no one there. Let's just go, I begged. A cold sweat started to trickle down the back of my neck. Scotty shifted his weight, obviously torn, and the floorboard beneath his feet groaned. The mannequin's head turned sharply towards us. Scotty leaped back with a yelp, an arm thrown out protectively in front of me. Liz, his voice trembled, run. I stumbled back down the hall on the legs that didn't want to work. I could hear Scotty stomping along behind me, and behind him a rapid skittering. We skidded at the top of the stairs, and I grabbed the railing to keep from falling headlong down the steps. While I righted myself, I dared to glance back down the hallway. It was empty. Where did it go? Something thudded against the ceiling. We both looked up and screamed. The mannequin was crawling spider-like over our heads. She wrenched her head completely around, turning her blank face towards us, and flitted towards the wall. She started to descend the whole time facing us. I was still screaming when Scotty hooked his arm around my waist and hauled me down the steps. We crashed at the landing, tripping over one another. We could hear the click of fiberglass on wood as she pursued us. I was crying, scrambling on my hands and knees across the floor. My brother was shouting for me to get up to go. He grabbed the back of my shirt and practically threw me down the hall. And then Scotty was shrieking. I spun. The mannequin was crouched on the last step. One arm outstretched. She had her fingers wrapped around Scotty's ankle. They were tightening, tightening, till his bones started to crunch beneath her grip. He kicked at, he kicked at her with her, his other leg, but it did nothing. 
She started to drag him back towards the stairs. Scotty, I screamed. But before I could move, he just looked up at me and shook his head furiously. Liz, he could barely get the word out through the fear and pain that masked his his face. Run. I wanted to stay. I wanted to grab his hand and pull with all my might and drag him out of the house with me. But he shouted again, run, 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 over and over until the words became garbled mess of howling, terrified cries that chased me out the same door we come in through him. It was the last time I ever saw my big brother. No trace of Scotty was ever found. My parents searched, police searched, there were dogs and special agents, and tons of time, money, and energy were put into trying to find him. None of it mattered. It was as if he had simply vanished. Bud Fillmore wasn't a suspect very long, with no evidence and no history of a criminal record. He was let go. Scotty was dubbed a missing child, reduced to a single box of paperwork that was all too soon moved to the cold case stack. No one believed me when I told them what really happened. They all said Scotty must have been kidnapped on our way back from Mr. Fillmore's house, and I was too young to really understand it that I had gotten confused and in all my fear made up some story using the scary thing I had just encountered. Mr. Fillmore's mannequin belonged to his late wife, Sharon. He kept it after she passed because it reminded him of her. Sometimes he'd move it around and put it in the window, but it wasn't alive. You understand that, right, Liz? My therapist was fond of asking. I told her what she wanted to hear, even if I knew it was a lie. The adults preferred it that way. It was easier for all of us. Maybe that's why I never showed anyone the note had been left taped on our door, typed and anonymous, typed and anonymous that just said, I tried to keep you away. I didn't think it would have changed anything. I knew, though, and I never doubted myself for the fact that Scotty had sacrificed himself for me, and up until Mr. Fimmel packed up and moved away, if, moved a few years later, I would sit in my brother's room and stare out the window at the house. I would watch the second-story window, waiting for a telltale dark figure to appear beyond the curtains, waiting for the quiet neighbor that everyone said didn't exist. Boo, y'all. That's probably my favorite one. That's pretty good. I like just the fact that the note from Mr. Fillmore, (laughs) I try to keep you guys away. We had a Mr. Fillmore (coughs) when we were growing up. Yeah, we did. Every time we ride our bike over on the sidewalk by his house. Get off my property. But then come to find out he actually had a, he was a sex offender. Yeah. And oh, we, 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 we uh, were too close. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fillmore is a good name for him. <laughs> Speaking of names. Ready for another boo y'all? Or not boo, another um, Mad Lib? Yeah. Mad Lib. This one's about a Ouija board. I need the first name of a person. Chad. I need the first name of a person. Amy. I need an adjective. Beautiful. Thanks. (laughs) And another adjective. Ugly. Thanks. (laughs) I need the full name of a person. Dave. I need a number. Three. Okay, I need a whole lot of... Verbs that are past tense. Talked. Walked. Thought. Uh, yeah, thought. 
Thunked. <laughs> Thunked. <laughs> uh, two more. Peed. Ran. Now, uh, normal verb. Come. And another one? I guess it's coming. <laughs> Not come. <laughs> uh, Wave. No, yeah, that's an action. Wave. <laughs> a verb that ends in ing. Spinning. A verb. Beat. You say beat. Beat. Just beat it. Now, a verb that ends in ing. Sexting. This is really weird because it's got all our names. <laughs> <laughs> An adjective. Gusted. Disgusting. A uh, verb that ends in ing. Shocked. Or shocking. Not listening. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it ends in ing. Shocking. <laughs> shocking. Uh, location. Kokomo. Get there fast and then we'll take it slow. <laughs> and then a verb. Go. And then a past tense verb. Goad. <laughs> be gone. Um, I think it'd be went. Could be that too. Um, Failed. Failed. All right. Let's see here. This is the Ouija board nightmare. Ouija board nightmare. <laughs> Last night, my friends Chad, Amy, and I wanted to have some beautiful fun. So we went to the cemetery with a Ouija board. Sounds like beautiful fun to me. <laughs> we sat by a gravestone of an ugly girl named Dave. <laughs> <laughs> she was three when she died. Oh. <laughs> we talked our hands on the pointer and started moving it around, asking Sally if she was with us. Around in circles it went and finally walked on yes. We thought and peed. Because we knew we put it on yes. We ran for a... Oh, God. (laughs) We ran for a while, and then we heard a child come. (laughs) Why did y'all do this? (laughs) We got up to wave around, and the pointer was moving on its own. It was spinning very fast, and it kept spelling out, Are you in? We were so scared, we beat it to the car. As we were sexting out of the cemetery, we could see a disgusting black figure shocking between the gravestones. We went Kokomo and stayed up all night with the lights on. The next morning, we went out to get in the car to get breakfast, and there was the Ouija board on the hood of the car. We left it when we went out of the graveyard. We failed the board. And never spoke about that night again. Let's do one more. Yeah. Do one more. Okay, serious, Chad. Let's do some funny ones. Let's go. Stay away from the sex jokes. Or not. All right. An adjective. Large. And another adjective. Smelly. And another adjective. Hairy. And another adjective. Brown. And a noun. Trump. And a noun. Doctor. And another noun. Beer. Did you say beer? Beer. And another noun. Cat. Clothing. Suit. A noise. Yeehaw. A body part. Weenus. A color. Orange. A liquid. Semen. An exclamation. Zoinks. An animal. Bigfoot. A number. 72. 
An adverb. Shyly. A pet's name. Frank. <laughs> Bumpy. Uh, an adjective. Bumpy. Another adjective. Frail. Another adjective. Swollen. And another one? Sweaty. And a noun? Cup. And another noun? Bulletin board. <laughs> a bot. <laughs> and another noun? Dinosaur. And clothing? Bow tie. Thong. thong. Let's go thong. Thong. Thong, 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 thong. A noise. Eek. A foreign word. Taco. Oh. Taco. <laughs> Taco O. A body part. Elbow. A color. Great. Beige. Oh, beige. Yeah, that's fine. An exclamation. Ay, caramba! An animal. Three toed sloth. That's so specific. <laughs> A number? 69. An adverb? 69. (laughs) Um, Quickly. And then another adverb. Clumsily. Clumsily. All right. This is oohs and ahs. And oohs is spelled O-O-Z-E. It's it's like a pun. (laughs) I will never forget the night it happened. It was a large night, and I was relaxing upstairs with my trump. A good book and my faithful three-toed sloth Frank. <laughs> Suddenly there was a loud eek. I sprang to my feet and crept downstairs, trying to be as bumpy as I could. Nothing looked out of the ordinary. Suddenly I heard the eek again. But this time it was much more smelly. And I knew it was coming from the basement. Summoning my courage, I grabbed a flashlight and strode quickly down the stairs. I might have met my end right there, if not for Frank, who let out a loud yeehaw. <laughs> Startled, I jumped shyly to the side just in time to avoid a long, gooey appendage. I turned my flashlight on the intruder and gasped in horror. Lurking there in my basement, bathed in the frail glow of my light, was a huge, quivering, shapeless blob of ooze. The hideous thing was as orange as a cup and as big as a doctor. I caramba! I cried. (laughs) I fled clumsily upstairs, but the thing chased me with lightning speed. I was trapped, and I knew I had to fight if I wanted to survive. First, I tried to chop it with a sharp bulletin board from my kitchen. (laughs) Then I shot it with my grandpa's beer that hangs over the fireplace. (laughs) In desperation, I even tried throwing semen on it. But all to no avail. It just kept coming. (laughs) I thought I was dead for sure. Then suddenly a strange figure crashed through my window and leapt between us. He was tall and hairy, with fierce swollen eyes and brown shoulders. He was dressed entirely in black, except for his beige thong. (laughs) Zoinks! The figure cried. And quick as a Bigfoot, he jumped in and stunned the used creature with a powerful kick. Without pause, he scooped the thing into a dinosaur and tied it shut with a long cat. (laughs) How did you do that? I gasped, trying to catch my breath. Their only weakness is their (laughs) weenus. One good kick and the things are helpless. But how do I find it? I asked, staring at the shapeless mass. 
That is easy, said the stranger. It is right next to their elbow. <laughs> I thanked him for saving my life and asked him his name. I am Taco, and I have been hunting the Uj's creatures all my life. Join me in my quest, and we will make the world safe from their sweaty evil. <laughs> now that I knew the truth, how could I say no? I joined Taco that night, and my life has never been the same. I learned how to spot their weenus in less than 69 seconds. <laughs> and together, we have defeated over 72 of the ooze creatures. I even got my own beige thong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I Karamba! <laughs> I am Taco! <laughs> I am Taco. Sorry! <laughs> <laughs> We'll oh, have to do more of fun. those for the next yeah. boo y'all. But I think that's going to do it for our boo y'all, y'all. Boo y'all, y'all. Be y'all, y'all. Next time you might get your own beige thong. Thank you guys for listening. Again, thank you to Britt for being a Patreon. Don't forget to go and check out our brother and sister podcasts. You've got Administrism. Smuts up, ad hoc history, faithblind council, luxicult, and of course, as always, grognostics. And be sure to go check out our Facebook page, our Instagram, and our Discord server. You can find them all at UMP Normalcy. And also, we've got our website, and you can look at merchandise and all that fun stuff that we've got. Oh, and don't forget to go to Parabox Monthly. Use the link in the description below and sign up. Uh, use promo code paranormalcy at checkout and you will get 10% off your first order and get a monthly paranormal t-shirt sent to your door. Mine's coming and I'm excited. I think that's going to do it for tonight. Until next time. Keep digging. Zoinks! Ay caramba! Taco. <laughs>